it's an interesting organization. I heard from Daryl that uh, at your national gathering last year, you had uh, Fleming Rutledge speak. And one of my favorite theologians, her book on the crucifixion is just a wonderful text, and she's done other things as well. And um, so um, as I learn more about Mockingbird, I'm, my interest and intrigue increases. And I'm very grateful to be with you here today as well. Um, uh, I bring you two greetings from my community of faith at Augsburg University. It's a small college of the Evangelical Luther Church in America in Minneapolis, Minnesota, set right in the heart of the city of Minneapolis. Um, and um, we're an urban school and proud of it. Uh, we, um, we currently have about 50, maybe to 60% students of color. It's a fun group to teach. These are, these are not students who... Um, these are students who have a deep interest in religion, let's put it that way. Maybe not always the Lutheran tradition that Augsburg comes out of, but they're very interested in religious questions, Christianity. Um, we have a, a fair sampling because we're in the neighborhood of one of the largest Somali communities in the United States. We have some Muslims in there too. It's an interesting mix, keeps it lively, and I'm very grateful uh, to be there. And, and again, what we're trying to do there, and I think Oh, that'll be the object of all our colleges and universities that claim an affiliation with the church is keep faith and learning together. Faith and learning need each other. I mean, faith without learning tends to get pretty superficial and learning without faith can be arrogant. They need to be in conversation, deep conversation with one another. And one of the ways we try to do that at Augsburg is through this whole lens of vocation and getting students interested in thinking about what it means to have a calling in life. So giving them some sort of overarching framework instead of the sort of what tends to happen in academia today, this sort of scattershot thing going on, and uh, they're sort of left to make sense of it themselves, which is kind of sad. We, we think we have something to offer, and we think that especially the teaching on vocation um, is something that um, plays well uh, in, in for, for millennials, people in their 20s, 30s, uh, and uh, something we're listening to and thinking about and pondering about. Anyway, so... Enough introductory stuff. Um, um, I'd like to keep this as informal as possible. You guys have questions? You want to argue a little bit? Great. I enjoy that. Give and take. I mean, let's keep, and we're amongst friends, I take it, I, I assume. Um, and we can certainly, well, we'll find out, right? And uh, I, I certainly would like to uh, and keep it engaged that way. Sometimes I get running. Don't hesitate to stop me. Really, seriously. Just just come right, come right out with it and say, hey, wait a minute, it's not clear, or I want to argue with something. Um, with regard to the presentations, I have two presentations as Adam um, mentioned, and um, I'm going to sort of flip them as I was thinking about it as it was coming out here. Um, by the way, I got to wait two and a half hours on the, in the plane in, uh, Mini, in Minneapolis on the tarmac. I was in, I was in the middle seat because I'm too cheap, you know, to buy one of the... Oh, man. So I was thinking. Anyway, so I was thinking about the presentations, and I think it's wiser to flip them. And what I'd like to start out with tonight is, is basic orientation to vocation, what vocation is all about. I, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I understand you guys know some of the, I'm going to certainly presume some things, but I hope it will be a, a, a good grounding in what I mean and what I believe Luther stands for when he talks about vocation. And then tomorrow morning, I'd like to get into the vocation of the preacher and use the Luther again as, as sort of the lens through which we can think about that. So um, um, vocation more in general today and then, or tonight, and then the vocation of the, of, of, of the preacher tomorrow morning and, uh, and using Luther uh, as, as a way to talk about that. So let's, 
let's proceed. And um, I call this making the high places low. Oh, by the way, shameless self-promotion. Um, I did write a book. My wife is still waiting for me to write the cabin book. You know, the book that sells so much where you get the cabin out of it. And... <laughs> I, I, I don't think, the, maybe a wheelbarrow, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, but it's really it meant to be a catechism on vocation uh, and to be used as such. So it uses Luther's life as a lens for thinking about calling and what it means to have a calling. And I hope that will become more clear as we proceed through the evening as well. And really my goal is to make the first article. First article, of course, God the Creator, um, that, that tends to be something such past tense. And of course, for Luther, it was not. It was a lively, very present reality. I believe God has created me and everything that exists. He has given me and still preserves my body and soul and all their powers. I mean, there's this sense of God being present, hidden, to be sure, but not absent, present, present in all of creation. And that's so intimately linked then with this whole idea of vocation. So in order to understand this, though, I like to give a brief, very brief background uh, on, on why Luther reacted the way he did, in particular with regard to vocation, and the way it was understood then in the late medieval church. In order to understand that, we need to kind of go back a bit of, a, a bit of time. Our initial focus, monks and nuns, and I'm going way back now to the early church, and Eusebius from the 4th century. So this maybe dusts off some text for you guys from way back when. But it's a crucial quote, really, to understand the direction in which the Western church moves in understanding vocation. And Eusebius says this. He says, two ways of life were given by the Lord to his church. The one is above nature and beyond common living. It admits not marriage, childbearing, property, or the possession of wealth. Think about this. Like celestial beings, these gaze down upon human life, performing a duty of priesthood to Almighty God for the whole human race. So one is above nature. Like celestial beings. Look at the language here, all right? He's clearly making the distinction that would become much more prominent, of course, by Luther's time. We're skipping over great swaths of time here, but right where the monk, the nun, the priest have the vocation and the rest of the people do not. And Eusebius is justifying it. So the two ways of life, one is above nature and there's a more humble human way that prompts men, women to join in pure nuptials and to produce children, to undertake government, to give orders to soldiers fighting for right. It allows them to have minds for farming, trade and other secular interests as well as for religions. So in other words, there's two ways of life, right? One above nature, like celestial beings. These are people who have truly dedicated themselves to God. And then there's the folks kind of left behind on the ground, certainly doing important things. But the focus here now is the next life. This life then gets at least, um, um, I don't know if we want to say marginalized, but certainly gets put in a different kind of perspective. It's certainly not honored in the way that we will see that Luther will honor it. Of course, the way above nature in the West becomes the monastic way. And again, great swaths of history were passing over here. Benedict of Nursia was the most famous. And you had the monastic vows and that were taken and developed into the institution of monasticism in the West. And the typical vows then were vows of poverty. No owning of private property, of course. Chastity, purity, not only with regard to sexuality, but purity of mind, chastity, and Obedience, obedience to the abbot, of course, obedience to God through the abbot. And of course, I want to be careful here. 
monks and nuns lived a life in a community. You know, monasteries were remarkable places in many ways. They were orphanages, they were hospitals, they were schools, they were places of refuge. I don't want to minimize their contribution to society. They're probably more profound than perhaps some people who like to lift up Luther perhaps recognize. But at the same time, the main purpose, the goal, right, of going into a monastery in the monastic, entering the monastic life really was salvation. It was the fast track to heaven. It was the left-hand lane with the blinker on, right? You really wanted to get there? That's the, that's the route you took, okay? So there were, again, following up on Eusebius, there are these two classes of lives. Further evidence of this, Thomas Aquinas, of course, the great Catholic theologian of the Middle Ages, said the monastic vow was a second baptism, meaning that it forgave all sins committed up to that point. Think about that. You take a monastic vow and you've become baptized again. Bernard of Clairvaux, whom Luther loved in many ways, the great mystic that Luther borrowed frequently from his sermons, especially on the mystical union with Christ. Bernard of Clairvaux said, the diligent obedience of a monk restored the divine image lost in the Garden of Eden and even elevated him near the realm of angels. So this is the tradition then that is inherited by Luther's forebears. Vocations then belonged to the monk, the nun, the priest. They were the spiritual athletes of the day. I put Michael Phelps up there. I don't know. I'm trying to find an athlete. Whatever. You get it, right? You make the connection to spiritual athletes. All right. Good. <laughs> the whole system, of course, was undergirded by an understanding of merit, of keeping score. We'll get into this when we get to Luther as well, of course. But um, there's just this sense then that um, one is always en route. One and, and again, you know, the, the great mistake with sometimes people when they talk about Luther is they, and popularizers of Luther maybe, say that, you know, well, Luther didn't have grace in his life. Complete BS. Complete and utter BS. He had tons of grace in his life. There was fun, a phenomenal amount of grace in the monastery. He heard grace when... He heard the scriptures read to him, or when he read them himself. He regularly received and participated in the Eucharist. He heard from his confessor, Martin Luther, I declare unto you the forgiveness of all your sins. Grace was everywhere. The problem was, is that he was always told grace was not enough. He had to do his part. He had to complete it. There was something he had to do. The whole issue of merit enters in there. And of course, for Luther, that's what drove him crazy, right? Because when you got to do something, even if you're told it's a little bit, the question becomes, well, how much do I have to do? And so don't ever, you know, let people get away with saying, you know, grace wasn't in Luther's life. Yeah, grace was everywhere. But it was a faulty understanding of grace. And um, for Luther, it became even demonic. So uh, the whole notion of merit, keeping score, let's keep moving here. And of course, in Luther's day, this is all undergirded by a great fear of death and a fear of judgment. Some of the great paintings from the European churches. Even in Luther's Wittenberg, there's a side chapel outside. Some of you have been to Wittenberg? You've seen? Yeah. There's a side chapel from 1300, actually, next to St. Mary's Church, the city's church, city's church in, in Wittenberg. And you go into that side chapel, and actually I took a group there last year. I'm preaching in the side chapel to this group of about 20 people. And then I looked over, the, the, there's a stone um, 
a, a work of, in the stone over the archway that only the preacher can see because the congregation's facing you. And I realized, oh my goodness, it was kind of obscure and weathered by time. It was the last judgment. That's what Luther saw. That's what people regularly experienced, right? Um, you are being held accountable. That whole sense of having to measure up, that whole sense that Jesus is a judge coming at the end of time. Um, the notion of Jesus as a savior that kind of, you know, uh, gets so syrupy today, unfortunately, in so many ways. But that was missing. It was missing in so many ways, too, for Luther's time. And so you have this, you have this notion then of, of fear and fear being the main motivator. And it's a poor motivator. We all know that in the long run. But fear being the main motivator in people's life. And, of course, lives that are nasty, brutish, and short. I mean, think of the death that pervades every day, life in Luther's time. 95% of the people are peasants. They can't read. They can't write. This is the mass media of the day. Christ coming on the rainbow at the end of time. This is what they see. This is what they know. Think about the plague. 1350 wiped out 40% of Europe's population. 40%. You were old if you reached the age of 40. Women, can you imagine in childbirth? Probably one in four died giving birth. Infant mortality rates, probably 40%, 50%, we're not sure, didn't reach the age of one. I mean, death was everywhere. And death was connected with judgment, fear, uh, this need then to, no wonder there are pilgrimages, no wonder Luther's Prince has this great collection of relics. I mean, people are grasping at anything. Um, and, and again, and, um, um, well, I'm going on again. Let me stop. You guys, questions, comments? Trying to make a case here with regard to vocation. All right, let's keep going. Um, can I get into this a little bit? This is yeah. kind of interesting stuff. All right, so part of the late medieval way of thinking, 1300 to 1500, right? Kind of the, the time around Luther. Of course, um, the sacrament of penance was very, very important because baptism, while it was very necessary, everybody had their children baptized, of course, but you also then had to deal with the problem of sins committed after baptism. And that then meant that you engaged the sacrament of penance. That's why Luther always complained. Sacrament of baptism has been forgotten. It's lost in the mists of infancy. Nobody remembers their baptism anymore. Everybody just goes right to penance. What's happened to baptism? That was one of his complaints. Well, penance became really the sacrament of daily life for people. And of course, it prepared you for the Eucharist as well. You had to go once a year, right, at least, and, and, make, and, and make your confession. So we have um, catechisms from that time, written by priests, of course, to help confessors grill the consciences of their penitents. And here are some actual questions taken from penitential manuals from the 14th and 15th century. This is taken from a catechism for children. Now, you had to be of the age of seven. That was the age of accountability, supposedly, right? Boy, I had a five-year-old who was very accountable. Anyway, <laughs> I thought so anyway. 
But anyway, the age of accountability was seven. Here's some actual questions. So this is your seven-year-old and eight-year-old. You go into the, conf- there probably wasn't a confessional at those. In fact, there wasn't. You just confessed to the, pri- the priest is in the village. The priest knows everybody, right? I mean, there's no, there's no mysteries here. But the, you go and you confess then to your priest as a child. And the priest asks you the following questions. Have you loved your father and mother more than God? Have you thrown rocks or snowballs at others? Have you ever believed in magic? Have you failed to kneel on both knees during the mass? And an actual question in my favorite one. Have you killed the emperor with a double-bladed axe? (laughs) An actual question that a seven-year-old might hear in the sacrament of penance. And why is it there? Who knows? What? Did, no, no, it never happened. Not that it, I, it's actually not a bad question. It may have. Is that a euphemism for something? No, it isn't. No. It's to test alertness and truthfulness. <laughs> so the kid's, you know, sleeping, right? And I, oh, no, 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 I didn't do that. Casey was just, you know, getting too rote in his answers. So the catechism, again, but is this comforting? The sacrament of penance, these kinds of questions, grilling the conscience. You already have an atmosphere of, atmosphere of fear and death, and then you get this stuff. And so I always, you know, right? Macaulay Culkin. Here's some sample questions for adults. Again, actual questions drawn for penitential manuals. Have you muttered against God because of poverty or the death of a child? Have you loved friends, relatives, or other creatures more than God? Notice the subjectivism in there, huh? I mean... How do you measure that? Have you girl watched or exchanged adulterous glances in church? This is my favorite one. Have you insulted, cursed, or wished the clergy dead? (laughs) That's pretty good. Have you thought of committing adultery? Again, on thoughts, intentions, um, uh, of course. uh, That's a slippery slope. And so I found Munch's scream, right? I mean, the... The problem, of course, with the sacramental process, what happened was is that you got grilled to the extent, you were run down to the extent that could you even hear the word of grace after this? Would it mean anything? Yeah, I mean, it was meant to free you from yourself, but it, I think, in effect, what happens, you become so self-absorbed and so caught up in these questions and, moreover, the fear that these questions engender that all of a sudden the sacrament of penance doesn't work anymore. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people were very dissatisfied with this. And this is even before, right, we get into discussion about indulgences. So along comes Luther, 1483 to 1546. And I want to make the case, the young Luther was a person without a vocation. The first 22 years of his life, he did not have a calling until he entered the monastery in the city of Erfurt at the age of 22. Similarly, his parents pictured here, Hans on the left, Margaret on the right, they did not have vocations either. They're very honorable people. Hans was a copper miner, and we've come to know now that he probably even by the end of his life owned a couple of copper mines and became probably fairly wealthy. You can kind of suggest it, suggested it, uh, that a little bit with his, the fur collar that he has on. But uh, Margaret was... Um, Probably the reason Luther went to school is through her family. There's some lawyers in the background, even some minor nobility. And probably it was because of her and her family that Luther got an education. And, of course, she then um, lived the the life of a medieval woman, probably a lot of hard work, garden, 
uh, tending an orchard, brewing beer, taking care of the family, taking care of the cattle. Um, you can imagine um, what might be encompassed in the life of a late medieval woman, probably deeply underappreciated. Uh, but neither of them had vocations. They were living life, even honorably, in this world, in this life. All right? Luther then, at the age of 22, at 1505, he has this great interruption. I just want to make a suggestion that I found maybe helpful in my teaching at Augsburg. I have my students, when I have them think about their sense of calling in life, one of the things I find helpful is to have them write about or even talk about an interruption. I say, tell me, pay attention to interruptions in your life. You know, we think life's going along this way, and of course we have our plans, right? It's gonna, and then all of a sudden what happens? Boom, boom, we all know. Surprises. We're going to talk about Luther's view of his own life in a moment. Um, and there are all sorts of interruptions, or like one student last semester raised her hand. She said, no, interruptions too soft. You mean disruptions. Maybe she's right. And I had them write about it. Just a free write for 15 minutes. It's amazing the things you hear and the stories they tell and the things that they've suffered or gone through or been sh shaken up by. But it attempts then, right, to, to, to provide some sort, of, some sort of coherence to those sorts of incidents. Instead of just, you know, life is just random, shit happens. It suggests that, no, there's more than that. There's something bigger than that. There's a bigger picture here. We can make more sense of that. And it encourages some really interesting conversations. So the whole notion of the paying attention to your interruptions, I think is a way to sort of maybe get some talk about vocation going um, as well. I've even had some Lenten sermon series where um, parishioners in churches have preached on their interruptions. You know, you gotta be careful with that, of course. But, but, there's, but it can be done, it can be done well. And um, um, very moving for people. And they do a nice job with it. So uh, weaving that in then to the notion of having a calling in life. So Luther has his interruption at 1505. And of course, he enters the strict Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. You guys know the story. But maybe one thing you don't know is that this is the words that were said to him when, after he, he went through his um, year of initiation, his actual entrance ceremony into the monastery itself, he was told, not he who begins, but he who perseveres will be saved. Think about that. Again, you're always en route. There's grace in the picture, of course, but it's always finally up to you to keep it going, right? There's this assumption then that you're always progressing, you're always taking your pulse, you're always keeping score. Not he who begins, but he who perseveres will be saved. And of course, Luther, the story was, of course, that um, he thought that imitatio piety, that he had to suffer like Jesus. Um, and most of you, I think, know what happens here. But the key for Luther is that he comes to understand that Jesus does something for him. And we already, who had Kyle? No, who, had, who had the, yeah, theology of the cross, right? You picked it from Ferdy's. Right, right. So this is right out of the Heidelberg Disputation. I think it's a wonderful quote by Luther. I know you're not supposed to read PowerPoints, so sorry about that. But th these are priceless. Just dwell on it for a second, because I think it really gets at the revolution that Luther experienced when he came to know God's grace in Jesus Christ fully and truly. Okay? Look at the first sentence, or the first paragraph there. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man, 
comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. I mean, that's so crucial. The love of God, think about that, does not find, God doesn't go looking for people who are worthy of God's love. The love of God does not find, God creates the possibility of being loved by God. It's not in your hands, it's not in your control. That preaches, man. That really preaches. People need to hear that. They hear so much crap. They need to hear something else. And this is that something else. And the second part really sort of summarizes it. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They're not loved because they are attractive. Back to the saint and sinner thing, right? You're never going to be good enough. Give, give it up. Just, you know, stop. Hear the word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're lovable because God wants it that way, not because you made it that way. So again, I think, it, of course, by 1518, Luther's in, I think, the full swing of his Reformation revolution and some words about that then. So what really is happening here is that Luther's challenging the idea of a tra transactional theology. So much of our life is transactional. We all know that, right? If you do something, then you're rewarded for it. If then, if then, if then, if then. And of course, this culture is monetizing everything. I mean, it's incredible. You can't go anywhere. And it's just the vice gets, the vice gets turned tighter and tighter and tighter. My kid... Um, is a graduate student, and so he has to teach students at, at a, fir a fairly good university. And uh, he says, Dad, you can't believe their faces, the strain on their faces. They've been given all this, and yet been, they still got the idea they're not quite good enough, and they are just, they're just, they're just being ground down by it. He says it's just crucial. 30 to 40% of our college students are on some kind of medication for anxiety. 30 to 40%. Um, yeah, it's a, no, it's amazing. It's real. It's very, very real. Uh, this whole idea, if I do something, then I will be rewarded. And of course, the performance principle, one of the ways I talk about it, our core identity then, in other words, this wasn't just Luther's problem, it's our problem. Our core identity involves our looks, our brains, our income, our status, our perfect family. And of course, when you take that and you go that route, I mean, you want it to be based, look, look at me and your looks. I'm decomposing, as I feel like. At 62, and every time I look in the mirror, I, somebody get a black cloth. Um, our brains, there's always someone smarter, isn't there? I mean, we're always faking it a little bit, right? If we're honest. Yeah, I mean, a couple of years ago, I was at Augsburg. We had a Reformation celebration. We invited in a scholar to, to talk. And I know a lot about the Reformation. I've written books about the Reformation. I'm proud of what I know about the Reformation at Augsburg, except for maybe Virzma. Um, yeah, I know more about the Reformation. I, you know, I can strut around. This guy gave this great lecture. And as he's talking more and more, I'm slinking further and further into my seat. And I realize, oh, my goodness. It's so well done. It's so crafted so well, those insights. And I'm also thinking, I could never do that. 
You know, I mean, it's just true. I mean, there's always someone, right? Your brains, your income, yeah, of course. Your status, good luck with that. Your perfect family. Anybody got a perfect family? Oh, my goodness. Last week, my wife and my youngest son, who love each other, I mean, they're crazy about each other. They're yelling at each other on our deck. All of a sudden, the one neighbor's dog starts barking, and the other neighbor's dog starts barking, too. And I go, what are you guys doing? You've got the whole animal kingdom erupting here. I mean, it's crazy. Anyway, who has a perfect family? We don't. We don't. Millennials and social media, I think it's really true with regard to um, the credit of the phones. There's something really sinister, but I don't want to sound like an old man, and I'm not. <laughs> I know I'm sounding like one, and I'm, I'm, I'm not against social media, but there's something insidious about it. I mean, the performance principle, right? Because you're always judged. What are my friends doing? How come I'm not included? What experience are you having? Um, what did you just buy? What? And again, you're always, it's, it, it's this evaluative process that can be pretty, pretty dark after a while. All right. So, Luther, good works are now for your neighbor. They are for other people in the world. Good works are for this life. That is where they belong. As he said, God doesn't need your good works. God's doing fine without your good works, says Luther. But your family, friends, and neighbors, and all creation need them. So we're getting into the realm of vocation then, right? Freed for love and service for the neighbor. So the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, frees us then in the freedom of a Christian. He says, this teaching tells us that the good we have from God, and Luther in the freedom of a Christian is very interesting. He often turns to the word flow to express what he wants to say about the relationship between faith and works. There's a flow. I mean, it, right? It, an overflowing fountain. It, it, it's irrepressible. It can't be stopped. It's like, it, it, it has to happen. This teaching tells us that the good we have from God should flow from one to the other and be common to all. Everyone should put on the neighbor and act toward him or her as if we were in the neighbor's place. The good that flowed from Christ flows into us. The good we receive from Christ flows from us toward those who have need of us. I mean, he's into the language here of flow and free in Christ to flow. Um, I love this painting you guys know who, maybe who, who, who did this? Does it, look, does it look somewhat familiar? Can you guess? What? Close. Van Gogh, yeah. It's Van Gogh's rendering of the Good Samaritan. And it's beautiful. I mean, you can see the folks passing by on the other side. They're very minimized. But you get, you, with Van Gogh, of course, the wavy line suggests a flow anyway. But look at look what the flow, too, in terms of, in terms of taking the Samaritan taking the, the man wounded by the side of the road, taking the burden on himself. Look at the calf muscles. Look at the strain, um, the, the unity between these two. I mean, what Luther had in mind there in the second half of the Freedom of Christian is that we take on the neighbor's burdens. He even says in one point that we, that we atone for the neighbor's sins. It's kind of strange language because you think of Christ atoning for our sins. But he, such is, the, such is the, 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 that, that sense that you take the neighbor the neighbor's experience, all that the neighbor's experience into you, you really take, I mean, and we all know this, right, in pastoral care? When you get in those situations where you're really intensely listening and somebody's unburdening themselves to you, and it's exhausting. I mean, there's, I think that's what he's talking about here. There's, there's a sense in which you, you do, you take it on. That's part of the calling. 
That's that's a really hard part of the calling. It's an exhausting part of the calling. People outside don't really understand that part of the calling very well either. But um, that's why we need to take care of ourselves too. Because that's important work. It's kind of what's going on here. What does this mean for Luther's own sense of vocation? So the great irony, Luther enters monastic life in pursuit of the only vocation approved by the church of his day. He ends up rejecting the monk's life as a true calling, but in turn receives a genuine vocation as a preacher, as we shall see tomorrow. Teacher, father, spouse, citizen. In his own words, my vow is not worth a fig. (laughs) In short, it was taken in accordance with human doctrines and the superstition of hypocrites, none of which God has commanded. But behold how much good that God, whose mercies are without number and whose wisdom is without end, has made to come out of all these errors and sin. This is a letter to his father in 1520. He broke with his father in 1505. That was a rupture in that relationship. That relationship went sour for almost 15 years. And then he wrote this letter, right, uh, in 1520, where he basically says, Dad, you were right. I I shouldn't have gone in the monastery. Um, 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 That that was, I mean, in in a sense, he had to go into the monastery to to be liberated. There's no question about that by God. On On the other hand, um, that rupture in the relationship with his father. He really regrets in this. It's a very moving letter that he writes to his dad. And uh, there's now a, re- a gradual repair of the relationship. And five years later, his dad and mom will come to his wedding too in 1525. So there's a, there's a sense of, of, a, of a coming together. And then when his dad dies, his dad dies when Luther is, the Augsburg Confession was in 1530. Luther wasn't allowed to go to the Augsburg Confession because it was in, it was in enemy territory, right? Catholic territory. But he had to stay up north about 100 miles in a city called Coburg, going crazy while Melanchthon is doing all the negotiating for the Augsburg Confession. And Luther's worried he's not going to get it right and on and on and on. But at that, that, that time, his dad dies too. And uh, he wasn't able to go to the funeral. He was too far away. And he writes some very, very moving words about what his father had meant to him. And it's kind of interesting to see that relationship repaired We've got to read a lot into it because we don't have a lot of information on it, but, but you can see, you can see a, a big change that happens from those early years. Here's a great one, though, from the table talk. This is a great one on calling. Look at this. I am the son of a peasant and the grandson and the great-grandson. My father wanted to make me into a burgomeister or a mayor. He went to Mansfeld and he became a minor. I became a baccalaureate and then a master. And got, in other words, got an education. Then I became a monk and I put off the brown beret. My father didn't like it, and then I got into the Pope's hair, and I married an apostate nun. Who could have read all of that in the stars? <laughs> I mean, it's great stuff, huh? I mean, it's just, you know. So talk about, you know, we make our plans, right? And disruptions and interruptions and whatever they might be. For Luther, there's no such thing as a second baptism. Vows are not a way to God. God makes a vow to us in our baptism, which is the foundation then for vocation. I argue then that baptism really becomes central in Luther's understanding of a called life. Um, The baptismal foundation. And of course, this is a famous painting from Cronach's altar at St. Mary's Church in Wittenberg. You notice who's baptizing? Philip Melanchthon, who was never ordained. I know. I don't know. I'm just saying. Okay. Interesting. 
Notice that size of that font, too. Notice how the baby... Yeah, Luther didn't like the dipping. He, he wanted the full immersion. He really did. Yeah, liturgically, he would have argued for that. For Luther, then baptism saves. Baptism saves. Understanding Christ saves. But in baptism, we're so joined to Jesus Christ. His benefits are given to us. Righteousness, hope, forgiveness. All of that gets transferred onto us in our baptism. And every time we recall our baptism, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we invite or Christ invades us. Hmm? And that becomes part of who we are. Baptism saves. And, 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 and again, understand, understood that there's, I even think there's a case to be made for a real presence in baptism. We don't hear that talk very much. But in, in the water of baptism, I don't want to get all spooky about it, okay? Um, um, but, 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 I, but I think when the word hits that water, you know, Luther talks about it becoming a living water in the catechism. Living water. There's something, something, something gets, gets, um, waves are made, huh? And, uh, yeah, go ahead. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's a nice way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Luther's right there with him. And he, he has his baptismal hand. He talks about the rosy red blood of Christ in the water of baptism. And he's, he's, he's all there. There's a real presence there, I think, in baptism as well. So baptism saves, and it isn't over until you're under. Get it? It's continual. It's daily. Baptism is a daily dying and rising with Christ because you're always a sinner. And you're always in need of grace. You're never progressing on that. You're never, ever, ever anything more than a sinner. Totally. 100%. Therefore, baptism is always relevant. When you pray, forgive us our sins, that's always relevant in the Lord's Prayer. There's never a time when that ceases to be relevant, right? It isn't over until you're under, and then you don't need it anymore, says Luther. Of course, right? Baptism's over because now you've been joined to Christ. Our good works then get exercised in this life, in love of neighbor and creation. And for Luther, and I'm going to move it into the present here quickly, but for Luther, there were three separate spheres or dominions where baptism was lived out. Um, yeah. We have a few more. We started a little late. Okay. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not keeping dinner from people or... There's not a cook back there. We're going to throw stuff. Okay. All right. Good. Oh, good. Thank you. So three spheres or dominions or realms the, the, for him, of course, in the 16th century. One of those realms is the Christian community. We'll talk more about that tomorrow, too. There was the domestic realm, and of course that encompassed both family life and work. Of course, back in those days, a very agrarian um, economy. Work and family life were, even if you go to Germany today, some of the people, you've maybe noticed the barn and the house are the same structure. And it kind of reflects that in a way, right? So work and family life. Although during Luther's time, it's becoming much more urban as well. Big changes underway. And then, of course, you have the civic realm. And so all three uh, are places then where our vocation gets exercised. And moving from Luther today, and look at how, you know, relevant I am. I'm, oh, no. <laughs> 24-7, 365. I, this is my mantra about vocation. Uh, vocation is not, please, it's not simply work. I mean, for my students, they, well, of course, what do they come with? Vocation. What do they think? What do you think they say? Career. 
Yeah, career comes after college or vocational school where you're trained for a specific skill like car mechanics or something like that, right? Um, but yeah, it's at best the sphere of work and vocation equals work and that's almost always done in most of the literature out there. Um, how many of you are familiar with the Quaker Parker Palmer? Parker Palmer a little bit. He's done some good stuff. I'm not a Quaker for good reasons, but... Um, you know, he, he has some good insights, but it, oh, he completely collapses his understanding of vocation. He's a very popular writer into the realm of work. And therefore, he's shrunk in it um, beyond recognition in some ways. Yeah. Well, work, work I mean, when he talks about, for instance, um, um, in his book, um, um, oh, Life, what's it called? Just did a book study on it, sad. Uh, but basically what he talks about in terms of having a calling in life, he simply refers continually to his own career and your own career and how to think about your work life. And the problem with that is, of course, work is only a small part of our life. And therefore, we're suggesting then that somehow God's not at work in other areas of our life. And one of Luther's keen insights, I think, was that vocation really is 24-7, 365. And here's what I mean by that. And I think what he meant too are callings. So you have the vertical column. You have a calling to take care of yourself and the freedom of a Christian. Luther, before he talks about the neighbor, he says, you know what? First and foremost, you've got to pay attention to yourself too. Uh, it probably doesn't mean four hours a day in the gym, but it does mean right, taking care of yourself so that you might be able to take care of others. Family life is an area, of course. Uh, and we, we know this from, of course, Luther's own experience. He has six children, probably adopted, he and Catherine probably adopted four or five orphans. We're not even sure. I mean, crazy family life. Uh, friendship is a huge area of vocation. We all know how important our friends are. We all know how we all struggle at times with loneliness. It's hard. Loneliness is hard. We know how important friends are in terms of um, how we see ourselves, how we participate in the larger community. A good friend is rare. Somebody who will really level with you, who tell you when you're full of it, <laughs> but also somebody who understands you as well. You aren't going to have too many of those. Friendships are really high calling. Um, Luther had this. He didn't identify it as a vocation, I say, unfortunately. But if you read his table talk, I mean, his friendships were rich and deep. My goodness, uh, there in the Wittenberg circle, um, 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 uh, uh, you have Luther surrounded by mentors and peers and, and friends. The community, citizenship is a high calling. We know that, especially in our day and age where it's, things are really fragmented and coarse out there. Role modeling, what it, might be to be, what it might mean to be a citizen is really important. It's a very high calling. Um, the community of faith, church, of course, participation in the church. And then finally, work. But work is not, is one part of your vocation. One part, right? See what I'm saying? 24 7, 65? And then across the vert, this is a real, yeah, as you've undoubtedly ascertained, my PowerPoint skills are minimal. Okay. So <laughs> this is a real lame attempt to make a cross. <laughs> Even when I laugh, even when I look at it, I laugh. 
Anyway, so you have these, you have these callings, self, family, friends, community, citizenship, church, work, and then some of the qualities or characteristics of a vocation. It's now. Like I tell my students, what's your vocation? Be a student. Show up. Do the reading. Be prepared. It's a high calling. Okay? You have a vocation right now. It's always, 24-7, like I said, you're never without a calling. God's at work in the world. The world is alive and full with, of God and God in creation. Hidden, working behind mass, says Luther. Okay? Not always, you know, but, but if you, once you start seeing the world through this lens, this whole idea, you know, that the deists had, that God is way up there somewhere and the world is kind of absent of God or the evangelical view where God dips in once in a while in these spectacular experiences and then leaves again too. I mean, for Luther, that would be such BS. The world's, the world's charged with God. Once you get the eyes to see it, and it's through the lens of vocation that this happens. God's alive and working in the world, always. Vocation's often ordinary. It's not always spectacular. In a university setting, there's this temptation to be heroic all the time. And I love it. I was that way, too. I was, I was a full-fledged Marxist when I was 18 years old. <laughs> I had this guy at Luther College, this guy Luther political science prof, who convinced us that Mao, he was reading Mao's little red book, and uh, we were meeting in a cell. I mean, I almost got cult-like. And I was wearing gray. And, you know, I'm walking around as an 18-year-old, and of course we were, Mar we were, we were the ones who really had it figured out. We had the insights as to what was wrong with the world. We knew who the enemy was. We were so self-righteous. I look back, I'm so embarrassed even to think about what some of the things I did. But, but, but you know, um, the rest of this, the whole campus didn't get it. We got it. We were the heroes, right? Uh, vocations of an ordinary. My mom died five years ago, 87. She had a great run. I'm in Minneapolis. She's in Duluth. I'm the closest child. Um, she basically um, had a bad stroke and um, was, lost her ability to swallow. And it, it, was an, it, was, it was a death that took about eight weeks. Slow, very slow, agonizing death. And, of course, as a, as a child, my responsibility was to go. I mean, that's part of my calling. There was, no, it was nothing heroic about it. I didn't like it. I, we had some, I had some great times, actually, with my mother at that, in, 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 those, in those weeks. But at the same time, you know, it was pretty ordinary. It was a struggle. It wasn't easy. You guys, you've, you've probably all been there at one stage or another of your life. There's a lot of, a lot of things about vocation that's just plain duty. And uh, let's not turn it into this sort of joyride. I, I just don't get it. Uh, we'll talk about joy in a minute. Justice. Yeah. The one who calls us is Jesus Christ. He crossed lines. He included the people who never got included. He reached out to the people who are on the margins, the people who are overlooked, the people who are forgotten. I mean, we've got to think about that. That's, a, that's, that's not easy. That's part of the calling. Um, Bonhoeffer, you know, when he talks about vocation, he says it involves not only, and this is, these are hard words, involves not only suffering, he says, but he says Jesus didn't just suffer. He says, basically, hell, we all suffer. He was rejected. Think about that. We want to be so respectable, don't we? We crave respectability. I do. 
The notion of being rejected? Yeah, Bonhoeffer said that's a crucial part, he thought. Just sort of let that sit a little bit, make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. Because what does it mean to suffer and be rejected? That's what happened to Jesus. He didn't just suffer. He was rejected. That's the one we follow. Enjoy. Some people say, well, this is so dreary, Tranvik, you're so gray and dark and, you know... There's a lot of joy in this. The problem with joy, Al Rognes, who was the president of Luther Seminary, Daryl, you probably know him, remember, um, um, many years, said there are a few things more dispiriting than a sermon on joy. (laughs) And I think he's right. And why is that? Because, Because joy is a byproduct. You focus on it, you don't get it. It's like happiness. You focus on it, you don't get it because you're always taking your pulse. Am I joyful? Am I I happy? Am I happy? Am I happy? But if you fully, you know, immerse yourself in the world of vocation, in your callings, you'll find there's a lot of joy there. Deep, deep, resounding joy. You're called by Jesus Christ. I mean, there's a, there's a great joy in that that bubbles up from that. But if you focus on it, you don't get it. So I'm kind of hesitant to talk about, I know it's one of the spiritual gifts. I get it and all that. But I, I, think, I think what our culture has done with things like joy and happiness is mislead people. Um, um, and um, so at the risk of sounding dour and sad and mournful all the time, I... I don't include, or I I include joy parenthetically. (laughs) But there's joy out there. Trust me, there is. I'm not against joy. Yeah. Yeah. It's also underlined. Yeah, go figure. I don't know. Good call, though. So when I teach this, when I go into congregations, uh, when I go with with my students, again, I get them writing a little bit, get them thinking. So what about, where am I thankful? What are my gifts? What are the, some of the things that, you know, um, I need to lift up with family, friends, community, my community of faith, the world of work, the gifts that I have? Also get them to examine themselves. Where have I fallen short? Where do I need to do more work? It's amazing how people don't do this sort of self-analysis very often, as we know. People are just busy, 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 distracted, distracted. Pull them out of that. This is really important work for them to do. And ask them, what's my calling now? I'm working this then into your, I I think, into how you think about your relationship with your parishioners um, and thinking about, too, um, um, working into preaching and teaching, um, making this part of the common vocabulary of, of parish life. There's a lot of, I'm not I'm making it sound like you do this for the payoff, but there are payoffs. I mean, this really results in a richer understanding of the Christian life. It's, it's, I think it's very true to Scripture, and it brings God back into the world in a way for people who experience God mostly as absent. And we can talk about God in a way in creation um, that gives it much more meaning and depth than is often or usually done. It's a great, I think, treasure we have that we need to work on and share with, uh, with, with, our, with our people.